Okay, well, we'll just get started here. Welcome, everyone, to our Sunday afternoon session. Full crowd today. Wonderful. Thanks, everyone, for coming. For any of you who are new here, just to let you know that we have many things going on throughout the week and be sure to pick up a schedule before you leave or go, go look at the schedule in the courtyard or on the website I give talks here every Sunday at 3pm and every Wednesday at 9am except for the time I'm going to be away in Thailand and probably Sri Lanka as well for two months so I'll be back in mid-December hopefully or late December um, so today's talk I thought I would go into it's actually something that I've talked about before and I'm pretty sure I've given a talk on Second Life about it but uh, you know, it's it's important to go over the basics And I'm sure there's a lot of people here Who haven't heard me talk about this And so the subject today is uh, Perception versus reality Which seems to me to be a very important Topic in Buddhism And in Buddhist practice and one of those things in life that is uh, quite frightening, actually. It's quite frightening how wrong we can be uh, about reality. And so it's something that always, I think, should have us uh, second-guessing ourselves. We should never be so sure of ourselves that uh, we don't allow for even the possibility of being wrong because uh, it's impossible it's impossible to tell sometimes based on your own perceptions whether those perceptions are right or wrong if you don't really make effort to remove yourself from the situation and look at it objectively it's, uh, it's it's very easy to be even 100% sure of yourself and turn out to be totally off base and out of touch with reality. This is obviously one of the most important uh, co concepts in Buddhism, our ignorance, our misunderstanding of reality. This is considered to be the the root of all suffering. If you want to get right to the root, we generally say that the cause of suffering is craving. But where does craving come from? And if you follow it back to its source, all craving comes from delusion, from, from, from ignorance, from not, not knowing any better. Which is really a profound teaching and I've, I've often talked about ignorance how profound this is and how sometimes this is very different from our understanding of things and 
I think very liberating as well because if you take a person who's who's addicted to something um, we often look at addiction from a point of view of brain chemistry and so we say you can never really overcome an addiction you can just work really hard to change um, you know, sort of to change the way you look at it um, to change the way your brain works or or wait until the brain chemistry changes and in Buddhism that's not the case the brain chemistry is one thing and the addiction is another and uh, or, or the physical addiction is one thing and the mental addiction is another so your your body and your brain can be addicted to something and you not have to strive to attain that thing because of the fact that that the, the root of, of our craving is our ignorance. And so the body being um, a, uh, a slow-moving part of reality, slow to change, um, it often takes a while to catch up, but you, you don't have to go through that. We have to see the difference between the, the physical pleasure of something, of an addiction, and the mental uh, volition or intention to follow that. Um, and the understanding that it's beneficial to do so. If we can change those two things, the, the understanding, the misunderstanding of something, of a craving as being beneficial, and therefore the intention to follow after the um, the physical cravings then we, we can find ourselves in, in, in perfect happiness even without attaining the things that we desire as an example of this just um, you know, talking about how our perception of things can can be different from reality or how we can immediately become free from an addiction. Um, someone asked me about a week ago about about cigarettes. They were asking whether um, meditation could help them overcome cigarette addiction. And uh, I, I, I said it, it's something that takes time. I mean, you have to get the understanding that you're not just going to uh, do away with the physical craving. But what you can do in the beginning is when you look closer at at the craving, you'll see there are many layers to it. And the most external layer is generally guilt. Our, you know, if the, the fact that someone would come and ask this means that they um, they want to remove this addiction. So most likely they feel guilty about it. And that's what covers up most of our addiction is our, our guilt about it. And this is one of the, the, the important ways that we misunderstand things. We grasp our uh, bad habits wrongly, thinking that somehow we benefit from feeling guilty about them, from hating ourselves because of our, our imperfections. The other one is making excuses, and this generally goes hand in hand, because you can only hate yourself for so long before it becomes terribly painful. So the next step is usually making excuses or putting things off or so on. Um, this rationalizing or 
finding a it's a, a way of tricking ourselves into not dealing with the issue. So th these have to go first, and you have to examine this. You have to stop feeling guilty, stop hating yourself, self, stop feeling bad about your cravings, your failings as a human being, um, and start to accept them as as existing. Not accepting them as being good or 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 being acceptable in terms of um, a cause of of or, or a part of a harmonious existence. Obviously, they're not. But accepting that they exist, not denying or ignoring them. And you find once you do that, that, that of course they, they disappear. And it's just this um, looking at things correctly, uh, you know, seeing things for what they are, um, that does away with whatever is the problem, or it neutralizes the, the poison. And once you're able to straighten that out, and that's really a very important straightening out of the mind, this giving up of guilt and, and trying to rationalize away things, but you know, really uh, accept the fact that you've got a problem, that, that there's something here, that there's work to be done. There is this reality, this is what's going on. Then you can look at the addiction itself. Only then you can look at the addiction. You can't uh, come to... Um, honestly observe the addiction until you until you stop with this perverted um, mind state of, of feeling guilty and so on. And once you are able to look at the addiction uh, objectively, you see that it's actually made up of several parts. And I've talked about this before as well. The the craving is one thing. The the, the, the wanting or the this sort of pull, um, the attraction towards the object, say in this case cigarettes, is one thing. The feeling of pleasure is another thing. And, and the interesting thing about the feeling of pleasure is that it actually comes before you obtain the object of your desire. There, there's pleasure already there. And this is true with most addictions. I wouldn't say all addictions, and this is according to the theory. According to Buddhist psycho psychological theory, Buddhist psychology, there are two kinds of craving. One kind of craving comes with a neutral feeling, and one kind of craving comes with a, uh, a pleasant feeling. But for, for all intents and purposes, they're the same. They're both positive, and they're both seen as positive. It's seen that attaining something, for instance, sometimes smoking a cigarette doesn't bring pleasure, but it brings relief. So it's this calms, calming uh, state. And that comes at the moment when you want something, and that's what reminds us of, of what we're going to get. It reminds us of what's good about nicotine, or what's good about um, television, or what's good about music, or so on. Is When we want it, we've already got this, this starting up in the brain. The brain is already going through its cycle of, of addiction, or, or of, of providing pleasure. Because you know, things like music or, or art or beauty can't directly provide us with happiness. There, there's no happiness that comes from light um, hitting your eye. I mean, that's not a very pleasant thing at all. It's a, there's a reaction going on in the eye that's actually quite um, you know, chaotic. There's this light hitting the eye, bouncing off things, careening here and there and hitting your eye. Now, the pleasure comes when we interpret it in the brain. 
and the brain gives us this pleasure, dopamine I believe I'm, I've just been hearing things from scientists and I like to drop names and words and stuff but uh, there's a chemical reaction that goes on and, and you can see this through meditation there's something going on um, that's bringing pleasure now the neat thing is, is if you can separate these two the craving from the, the pleasure and um, focus alternately on, on either one or the other then it's just as though you were untying a knot and in fact it, it, it's almost exact, that's what it feels like it feels like you're untying a knot something that looked totally uh, unsolvable disappears it looked like a real problem you, you, you pull, push and pull and twist and turn and suddenly it's gone and the neat thing is when is when you focus on say the pleasure you can sit there and and be happy when you straighten your mind and you know according to the technique that i teach you say to yourself happy happy or or pleased pleased happy is probably the best if it's just a calm feeling is it calm 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 and focus on that and when you're able to do that you totally forget about the object you you you've totally lost any interest in the object itself you've you've penetrated to the heart of what's going on here and you're seeing things clearly and this is an example of 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 how it means that our perception of things what is meant by the fact that the our perception of things is sometimes radically different from the way things are The, the the Buddha had a one of the ways one of the important characteristics of his teaching was that he would categorize things, and this was in order to give a um, a comprehensive understanding of things to to something that's easy to mem easy to remember, and gives you a framework to work with that's complete. So, you know, what I just talked about is obviously just one aspect of suffering, of, of, of what causes us depression, what causes us um, frustration and anger and, and, and sadness and suffering and fear and so on. So, th this, is, this is, for example, why the Buddha taught the four foundations of mindfulness. Because when I say acknowledging a happy feeling, well, that's a useful technique, and, and, and I'd imagine that some of you would be able to put that into practice, but it's not comprehensive. So when the Buddha taught, he would, he would give a total outline of things, and, and once you can remember these things and understand them, then you have a comprehensive framework in which to practice. So this idea of saying happy, happy, happy to yourself fits in with that framework, and, and it can actually apply to everything. To, to every aspect of your existence. Once you see your experiences as they are, once you understand them for what's going on at that moment and, and, and break it down into its component parts, into what's really happening, then you, you can be free from all of the knots, all of the tangles that exist in our mind. All of these problems that we have, instead of being seen as, as entities, they become simply knots. It's something that's perfect, that's just been tied up into knots, and that's why it looks imperfect. That's why it look it seems to be um, flawed, and in fact, it's just knots.
and when you can untie those, you're free. So the four foundations of mindfulness are are just a way of of describing reality, breaking reality up into parts, to make it easier for you to do this. And one important quality of the four foundations of mindfulness is that it fits in with another classification, which the Lord would have called the uh, perversions of perception. Our misunderstanding of things can be broken up into four parts. So that's sort of the, the framework of this talk today, that I'd just like to go over these four things. So first of all, the four foundations of mindfulness, if you're not aware, I talk about them a little bit in, in my videos, um, but don't go into great detail. Um, it's breaking up reality and breaking up, breaking down the meditation practice into easily practicable parts, starting with the body. So the first foundation is is the body, or the first way we can set up, establish mindfulness is based on the body. When we watch the breath, and I, our technique is to encourage people to watch the stomach rising, because that's part of the body. If you've never practiced meditation before, it might not be the easiest object. But um, I guarantee once you get into meditation, once you start practicing it and start to calm down, once your body starts to relax, because your mind is no longer stressing and clinging to everything, you'll find this is by far the most obvious part of the body when you're sitting still. So we have people watch this, and, and if in the beginning, it's when, it, when it's still not um, clear or obvious, you can put your hand on your stomach just to reassure yourself that it is actually rising and falling. When the breath goes into the body, the stomach should rise. When the breath goes out of the body, the stomach should fall. This is natural. If it's not doing that, which it doesn't for many people, then there's something wrong um, with with the the state of your body, which is common. I mean, again, shouldn't feel we shouldn't feel bad about this, but this is this, the the state of things. Nowadays, we're so stressed out that our bodies are, are are incredibly tense. You can try if you want lying on your back, put your hand on your stomach, lying on your back, and and then watch it just to confirm for yourself that in a natural state, that's what happens. And that's sometimes useful to show us how tense we are when we sit up, when we're ready to go, when we're um, in work mode. Our whole body tenses up and we're not able to see this. But that's that's one example of how to be mindful of the body. When the belly rises, just say to yourself, rising, the belly falls, falling, rising, falling. And this is just an example. Um, it's a It's a beginner's technique. It's one that we always go back to. It's something that trains the mind in this technique, allowing you to um, apply it then to, to every part of experience, allowing, allowing you to see things, see everything that you experience clearly. It's like sharpening your knife uh, or sharpening your sword so that you can then use it in battle. When you're sharpening it, or when you're training in, in, in some kind of sport or or some kind of uh, martial art when you when you train you know it doesn't seem like you're getting anything but what you're doing is training your body and in this case training your mind the, the other thing that I've always said about watching the breath that that is sometimes not well understood is that the, se the secret really is is that it doesn't matter what you acknowledge you know we might think 
watching the breath is a silly thing because it doesn't have anything to do with my problems. You know, here I am depressed over this, stressed about that, angry, frustrated, and so on. Uh, it has nothing to do with the breath. But the truth is that whatever whatever applies to one part of our existence also applies to every other part of our every other part of our experience if we get stressed over one thing then that doesn't mean that that object or something wrong with it what it means is that we have a wrong way of looking at things so if you just watched your breath rising and falling for days on end you'd be able to learn so much about yourself in fact you could learn everything you can become enlightened just watching the rising and the falling. Unfortunately, it's not that easy because our mind doesn't let us stay with the rising and falling. Um, and so the Buddha you know, had, had many other objects for us to acknowledge. For instance, pain um, or, or in general sensations in the body. It could be a happy sensation, a pleasurable sensation or a state of, of calm or equanimity. And when these come up, you just focus on them, pain, pain, or happy, happy, calm, calm, until they go away. It, again, it doesn't matter what you're focusing on, so you can forget about the rising and falling, just focus on the pain, because it's clearer. At that point, when it arises, it generally um, takes your attention away from the rising and falling. So, not a problem, focus on it instead. And this is incredibly useful, because it allows us to... Um, to overcome our misunderstandings about pain, and instead of thinking it as a bad thing, we see it as as uh, simply pain. The third one is our thoughts, acknowledging um, any kind of thinking that arises about thinking about the past or future. When our mind starts to wander, because obviously in the beginning your your mind is not going to be with the rising and falling most of the time. Most of the time, it's going to be thinking about so many different things. And when that happens, we just focus on the thinking instead and say to ourselves, thinking, thinking. And the, the fourth category is actually um, more like a, a bunch of tools for us during the time that we're practicing. Um, it's not any particular categorization of reality, but it's lists of, of tools or of, of techniques in the meditation. The first one being the... Um, the meditation on the five hindrances and this can be ex expanded to refer to all of our emotions which are indeed a, a, a specific part of reality another one is the six senses so seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking and when, when these come up we can acknowledge them as well so the five hindrances, these are all um, emotions which take us out of a clear awareness of reality, liking disliking, and by extension anger, sadness, um, frustration, boredom, uh, fear. We feel drowsy or tired, distracted, when we feel confused or worried or doubting. Acknowledging these as well, liking, liking or disliking, disliking and so on. So for many of you this is already old news, you've, you've heard this on my videos or from the talks or maybe from studying other from other Buddhist teachers. What I'd like to talk about today then is how these over, help us to overcome the, the specific um, types of, of misunderstanding of reality. The first 
misunderstanding of reality that the Buddha talked about is the um, misunderstanding of beauty, of attraction, and in specific attraction to the body, to the human body. Because it's arguably the greatest attraction or the most primal attraction um, for human beings to be attracted to uh, a specific type of human body and to be turned off by a, another type of body. Um, when we look at someone's face, to be attracted to it or to be turned off. When we look at different parts of people's body, to be attracted by um, by the human body. And so th this, this is how they fit in nicely with the Four Foundations of Mindfulness because this one is obviously countered by examining the body. As you watch and start to see the true nature of the body, then this partia partiality disappears. We come to... See, see, Buddhism is... This is what I mean by saying taking us out of our perceptions and coming to see reality it our perception of reality is so um, narrow I don't think there's anybody here or I hope there's nobody here who looks at these deer and finds them sexually attractive I, I, <laughs> I know there are certain apparently people who find this but uh, it, it's certainly not a uh, a uh, a, a very widespread uh, emotion and yet the deer would say the same about us they don't find any of us attractive I know apparently with, with, as with dogs it can be different but um, it's it's this is this is a an example of how how narrow our understanding of reality is and we've built up this perception and in fact views based on our per perceptions that this is natural that this is the way things should be we we think of this as as um as reality and and, and all, what what I'm trying to to um offer is that given the fact that reality is such a much broader um, broader thing we're, we're, we're severely limiting ourselves and suffering from from intense partiality and as a result um, of this partiality we, we fall again and again into dissatisfaction and suffering the the truth about reality is is that is not uh, is that the human state is not anything particularly uh, special that in fact it's a very contrived state it's something that has evolved over time um, from on both a physical and a mental level from our our constant reproduction and cultivating of this state When in fact, from from a Buddhist point of view, the whole of the universe has to be taken into into 
uh, taken into consideration. You know, the the the, the constellations and the the um, you know, the galaxies and the whole of the universe is really a part of reality. We're not limited to this very incredibly narrow state of of the human existence, which is a brief um, moment in time. And this is this is part of the theory. This is this is. I, I'm just trying to say this because for me it's easy to understand, having studied. But I know for many people. Beauty is something so important to people, you know, un appreciating a, a tree or, or a sunset or something. This is important to people. But from a point of view of the whole broad perspective of reality, it's just a human emotion, our um, attraction to these things. And what's, what's, what's higher than that and what, what's more pleasant than that, more um, satisfying than that, is impartiality. And they say, um, like sitting on a mountain enjoying the sunset is one thing, but uh, when the self disappears and when there is no one sitting on the mountain and it's just the reality of it, when the self disappears, when we're able to let go of our our attachment to one part of reality, then uh, we reach a higher state. It's very difficult to understand, and, and um, I think many people are turned off from Buddhist practice because of this this sort of thing, which is which is understandable, given the the very steep inclination of people toward towards uh, sensuality. But once you focus, once you look at reality, I mean, I'm not trying to indoctrinate anybody by any means. Once you look at reality, you this is what I mean is that you'll come to see that, that our perception of things is often very different from the way they are. If, if it turns out that reality is not the way I say it is, then by all means, share it with me. I'm happy to learn something. But having investigated reality, it's pretty clear that um, th there's more to life than than this sort of thing <laughs> and not clear to, to those who, who don't practice so this is the, the first one the, the, the second one is the misperception mis of happiness that certain um, pleasurable experiences are true happiness the true happiness can be found from pleasurable sensations equally difficult to understand. We, we consider that's the meaning of happiness, is a pleasurable sensation. And if you don't practice meditation, you, you, you therefore find it very difficult to understand why we suffer. You, you, you have a difficult time, we have a difficult time understanding, especially with all of the pleasure around us. And in fact, more true, the more pleasure we, we have around us, that uh, we still fall into that we fall into suffering when, when we're not presented, with, or, or even we can be presented with happiness, with happy states, and still be incredibly depressed and, and unhappy. Especially when you hear someone telling you how, how, how the body is really not beautiful after all, and, and so on and so on. This, this is displeasing. 
but but it, it's something it's, it's very difficult actually because we look at people who appear to have it all and they seem so happy right they, they even pretend to be very happy it's, it's very misleading it's not true you know look at um, look at movie stars for example who seem to have it all who seem to be on top of the world we all know that they're, ter they're, they're terribly miserable Suicide and drug abuse <clears throat> runs rampant among these people who who are seemingly at the the height of sensuality. And then you have these old guys sitting on the top of a mountain, eating uh, stale rice and uh, living in a cave. Who are 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 immensely ha happy and and at peace, and this is because pleasant feelings are not the be all end all of happiness. They are a part of the cycle of addiction. I'm not making this up, and I'm not trying to uh, repress. I mean, there's there's always this knee jerk reaction by people. Oh, this is some uh, purist telling us to repress these feelings and. It's um, it's shocking on the one hand, but it's it's also um, predictable that people should react like this, because as I said, we're we're incredibly steeped in this notion that uh, this is. I mean, look around you, look at the world around you. What do you get in the mail every day? Everyone's trying to convince you. Your parents try to convince you. Your friends try to convince you. The television tries to convince you. Second Life does a pretty good job of convincing you that this is where happiness lies and yet it doesn't it, in this lies only depression and, and uh, dissatisfaction and the, the more free you can be from this the happier you are so acknowledging the feelings and seeing them change allows you to be free from both sides so that you're at peace with yourself so that your happiness doesn't come from um, from emotions. The, the happiness that you have is this sense of freedom, not being bound, not being afflicted by this constant bombardment of craving and, and needing and not getting what you want. The third misperception is that of permanence. And this has to do with our, our, our concept of stability, that um, this state is sustainable and it could be any any state in particular we fall into this it, this is this is not this is outside of, of the the first two this sort of um, misperception has to do with for instance our relationships with other people and why people why people will um, mourn the loss of a loved one for uh, for a long time and m might even do something drastic if they lose a loved one or, or someone breaks up with them um, when things change this inability to, to understand that everything is impermanent the reason why we cling to things is this misunderstanding the reason why we go for pleasurable feelings in the first place and think of them as pleasant 
is, is because we have some idea that it's going to last long enough to satisfy us. This one is also very difficult. We think that our relationships are very important to us. Our relationships are a cause of, of pleasure, and often they are um, when, they, when they last. Um, but but it's, it's just really one example, and it's not the whole of our life. We're constantly being um, denied this, this permanence, this, this stability. And yet we don't get it, we don't see it. And this is why, as an example, when someone dies, we, we suffer incredibly. Because it was, some, it was an important part of our life. This was something we depended upon. We relied upon the existence of this reality. But it's happening all the time. Um, when something breaks, when we get sick, when... Um, when we're interrupted in the middle of a, a, a television program or a, um, a song or so on, when things change, when our our pleasure, our our happiness disappears, the practice of meditation. This is one of the three profound realizations that come. This this idea of impermanence, and it's very fundamental to Buddhism. It's very fundamental to much Buddhist or much religious practice from all around the world. This idea of impermanence, that things don't last, that the things that we cling to are ephemeral, that we have a very narrow scope uh, in, of a view um, in regards to the, the whole of reality. That um, you know, our, the idea that, that the human life, we've got many years to live or so on, is actually um, so fundamentally flawed that, that, that we have very limited time on this earth. And it's very in, unstable. We don't know when we're going to die. But even if we do live out the full course of our life, it's, it's very short. And, and that's a, a, a scary thing because we don't know where we're going. Um, you know, from a Buddhist point of view, when you study, when you practice meditation, when you actually put into practice these teachings of, of what, looking and learning about reality, it, it, it's, it makes perfect sense, this idea of, of rebirth. It, it comes to be clear that this is what's going to happen. You can, you can feel it. You, you don't have to um, justify it or intellectualize it in any way. That's what's going to happen when you die. You're you're going to be you know left without um, without a, a refuge, without anything to hold on to. And this is why when beings die, they cling to anything, whatever comes up. And this is why when you're about to die, you know everything starts to flash before your eyes because your mind starts to um, starts to panic, starts to to release itself. And uh, if you really do die, it's going to cling to one of those memories uh, as a replacement and when the physical reality of this life disappears it's going to go with that if, if your mind is not trained this, this clinging can be incredibly fierce and, and it's like roulette you don't know what you're going to cling to well you can actually tell with some certainty based on your states of mind and the sorts of things that you cling to now 
um, are, are going to be the sorts of things that you cling to when you die. If you're a very angry person, you're probably going to cling to some sort of anger or, or, or fear or so on, a negative emotion. If you're a very uh, addicted, addicted sort of person, lustful, um, craving sort of person, then you'll cling to something pleasurable. You cling to something base um, and and pleasure and you know, immediately satisfying. And you'll fall into that. So you might be born as a as a as a dog or a goat or or even born in a, a, a unpleasant state based on your your state of of, a, of attachment. When we practice meditation, we we come to realize this impermanence. We see that really, we're we're our whole life is unstable. Our whole existence is unstable because it's dependent on the mind. And this is how this fits in with the four foundations of mindfulness. Because mindfulness of the mind is what allows you to really see impermanence. You can see that even our mind states, which is the most fundamental building block of reality, what allows us to experience things, even it is not permanent. It's not one mind lasting. It's mind state after mind state after mind state. And they can be totally unconnected at times. You find you're thinking about one thing one moment and suddenly you're off on a tangent and you don't know how you got there. Suddenly something completely unrelated comes up. And it can be based on a memory, it can be based on a sound, but it arri the, the mind um, arises based on the various these various causes. It can be totally um, unrelated. You, you see that all of our experience is totally dependent on the mind. What you're seeing here in front of you doesn't actually exist uh, in an experiential way uh, until you in, until the mind picks it up. For instance, someone can be saying things to you, can be talking to you, but you don't hear them unless your mind is at the ear. So sometimes you might be intent on the computer and so someone's talking to you and you didn't even, you never heard a word they said. You, you honestly didn't hear it because your mind wasn't there. So what this does is allows us a more dynamic approach to reality. We're able to take change a lot better. We're able to take loss much better. We're able to see that um, it does us no good wishing for things or wanting for things or hoping for things to remain the way they are, to never change, um, or to attach to things, to, to objects as permanent when we know that they're going to disappear. We, we start to lose this naturally. It's not an intellectual thing. You acknowledge yourself thinking, thinking, or, or acknowledging all of the objects, uh, all of the four foundations of mindfulness. It gives you a much more dynamic outlook on life. So you're able to roll with the punches. When things change, you don't take it the wrong way. You understand what was subject to change has changed. And, and that's it. It's this understanding that allows you to uh, you're not repressing any attachment or or love for people. You're, um, you're you have a clear understanding that this is the way it really is. Any uh, sadness or despair or suffering would simply be based on a um, invalid expectation of things, which is against the way things really are. So this is the third um, misperception. The fourth one is the, the misperception of self. The idea that we're in control. And this is an, an interesting one because I wouldn't want to say that we are deterministic beings. 
that we are fated to some um, some destiny or, or other. Because I don't think this is um, this is a valid way of looking at reality. It's um, a fatalistic. Um, it's 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 um, self-defeating. Because obviously, if if things are determined, then you don't have to do anything, and 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 by by thinking that, you change right away the um, your your future. So, in one in from an internal perspective, we are very much in control of 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 our future. Um, it's just that we're not in control in the ways that we think we are. And this has a lot, a lot to do with impermanence, and. Um, and the reason why things are unsatisfying because we can't control them we can't stop things from changing what we are in a sense in control of is how we react to it and the direction we turn in this is really at the core of our misunderstanding of things is this idea that we're in control um, and this approaching of everything in terms of how to control how to be in charge how to get what we want, how to arrange our lives in such a way as so that we never suffer, which of course is is impossible. So we always arrive at some sort of a near um, approximation, best approximation to total control, thinking that we've somehow arranged things uh, in such a way that we're more or less uh, stable, more or less happy. And from a human point of view, this seems reasonable. You know, I, if I can be stable for the next, you know, 40, 50 years, then, wow, that's, you know, I've lived a good life. And, of course, it's not always even, not, not always even possible to do that. Um, it's a gamble, right? You can say that, but many people have said that and, and, and failed. You know, nowadays in America, it's, most people, or a, a great majority of people, have who thought they were very stable, have seen their futures pulled out from underneath them and have found themselves in great um, distress, unexpectedly, thinking that, that that they had set up their lives in such a way that it was uh, it was stable. You know, they 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 tried to control things, and when when it changed generally fall into great despair because it's not, you know, directly because of their, uh, all the work that they did to set things up in that way. And again, this is from a human point of view, it seems reasonable to do that. That's what we're taught to do, to set up our lives. Um, and to some extent it's unavoidable. If you don't do that, you know, you, you will fall into great trouble. But it's this expectation and this idea that somehow we can control things. That, that's quite different from doing things out of necessity. Knowing that if I don't do this, I'm going to be out on the street, or I'm going to, uh, you know, doing it as a matter of course. Um, and because doing it as a, as a matter of course, you can be total, totally aware that this is my attempt to to do things, and I don't know whether it's going to work or not, but... Uh, it's really the only way to to go at this point, you know, doing things according to what is appropriate, as opposed to trying to set up and control things. The the un, the more universal universalistic, if 
you will, um, universalist way of approaching things. Like when we look at things from a much broader, from a point of view of the the the, the nature of reality, um, we're we're trying to move closer to a point of not controlling things, of not being in charge, of not trying to um, to. to create something, to build ourselves up to be something. Our goal in Buddhism, and in that sense it's why Buddhism is so compatible to any lifestyle, uh, any culture, any society, is because it, it doesn't aim to be anything in particular. It aims to help us let go of those things that we already are, and to um, to attain this state of, of bare attention and simple, clear understanding of things as they are. And so this, this final one is uh, particularly achieved through acknowledgement of, of our, our uh, emotions, our attachment to things. How we... Um, How we like certain things and dislike certain things. How how when when we focus on the emotions, we're best able to do away with this to change our idea of of self. If you zoom in on me, you have a better chance of of hearing me. If you can figure out how to zoom in on my character, because sometimes your setting is such that. You can't hear. Anyway, I'm almost done, and then we'll switch to text. So, focusing on, say, the emotions, focusing on the six senses, um, but really focusing on on all aspects of reality, you you you're able to break it up in into experience by experience by experience, and you're able to do away with this clinging, with this need to control things. When we focus on reality, I think I think another good one is the six senses because it helps us to break reality up into pieces and helps us to see that what we thought was ourself, this being that's in control, is actually just uh, a conglomerate of experiences. So this is the fourth uh, misunderstanding, and and these four are incredibly challenging, and I think uh, for a beginner in Buddhism, it's um, well, this is the challenge that is presented to us. Um, and the answer is not to accept these things blindly, but to take this challenge. And if you can deny this, if you can, through um, proper and um, extended introspection, can prove me wrong, can prove these teachings wrong, then that, that's no problem. That's, that's the way to go about it. And that's the scientific way to approach this, is to take it as a theory and to test it. And this is what we've done. We're not um, preaching or, or, or uh, pushing anything on people. This is an, an expression of reality. Now the problem is, Reality is is 
in, an incredibly broad thing, and we're so far, we're incredibly far removed from it. That's why it's it's generally um, repu repugnant and, and unacceptable to most people. So, um, rather than just dismiss it and say this is stupid, I already know the truth. You know, I already know that these things are bringing me happiness and 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 pleasure and satisfaction and permanence and so on. Um, you know, ask yourself: Are you are you happy all the time? And it's 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 a very difficult thing to do to actually open up to the fact that you might be wrong. I had uh, I was teaching in the jail, and this this man uh, I think I talked about this before. One of the people, one of the inmates. Um, he 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 wasn't. He was the worst of them all, and he was always talking when they were doing walking meditation, and I couldn't get him to shut up and just watch his feet. And so he came, and you know, I had to do these interviews one on one, and talking to him. He came over on his own, and he said, "You know, I really don't get it, and and I, you know, I wonder if you have some books. Maybe I can study." And so I started asking him. I said, "Well, you, you know, don't you ever get angry? No. Don't you ever, you know, get frustrated or sad or depressed? No, never." I'm like, "Wow. You know, then you, you, your life must just be total happiness." And he said, "Well, you know, you know, I, I, okay, yeah, I do get angry, but everybody gets angry, right? I mean, we have this." Uh, in you know we're unable to look at these things. We don't want to accept them. We we are trying to desperately to convince ourselves that everything's all right, and it generally becomes everything would be all right if I could just get this. So these guys are obsessed with when I get out of here, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be perfect. You know, it, all I need to do is get out of here, and I'm I'm set. You know, that's the problem. But it's it's so not. There's another guy in jail, he's a yoga practitioner, meditates every morning, and he says, you know, this is great, I've got a, a private retreat for the next, he's in for four years more, and uh, he said, when, when I get out of here, I'm just going to go find a monastery and keep meditating. So, this is the challenge, and um, I guess the other thing that's worth saying is, you don't have to accept it completely, and you don't have to understand these teachings completely. It's useful to um, get an understanding that this potentially is the truth, and you know accept the fact that we're not going to, in this lifetime, maybe be able to uh, realize this truth completely. But we can work at it. And it's a challenge for us to expand our horizons and to look at things in a different way, to not blindly accept the fact that uh, our attachment to things are the right way and and our our love of beauty and so on is is right already love of music music is a good thing and so on to um you know listen to music fine enjoy beauty fine but at the same time um understand that this this very well could be a, a limited understanding of reality and and once we're able to accept things on a broader scale everything is music everything is beauty and there is no Different different differentiation between certain states um, as as more or less um, pleasant, and because our happiness, our state of pleasure, so to speak, doesn't depend on any state. Okay, I'll, I'm going to stop there. That was almost an hour. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for coming. If you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Otherwise, uh, I hope that this teaching has been of benefit to all of you.
and uh, I hope that you are able to put these teachings and the rest of the Buddha's teaching into practice for your progress on the path and for the eventual realization of true peace, happiness and freedom from suffering. Thank you for coming.